Great to see you. Uh, my name is Andy, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, really excited about you being here with us tonight. Like Justin said, especially if this is your first time to our church, we're really thankful for you joining us this evening. Uh, and as also he said, we have been going through the book of Acts uh, in, a, in a study called Movement, where we've been looking at the history, really the, the story of the Christian faith unfold uh, before our eyes from the very beginning. So we've seen it uh, founded and established and then starting to grow and then uh, gaining popularity and picking up momentum as uh, literally dozens and hundreds and thousands of people begin joining the movement and uh, turning the world as they know it upside down until tonight. Because tonight, everything in that story is about to change uh, pretty drastically. Because tonight, what we're going to see is the first element of opposition. We're going to see the very first element of rejection to the Christian movement. Now, you know, if you're anything like me, when, it, when you even hear that word uh, rejection, it probably conjures up some type of bad memory uh, in your mind. You know, it probably conjures up some type of bad memory because uh, by this time in most of our lives, that idea of rejection whether, um, you know, that's from a school that you tried to get into or a job that you applied for or a house that you put an offer on or a, a new idea that you pitched in the workplace, all of us in some way or another have experienced rejection. In fact, uh, you know, to this day, I can still remember uh, a story that hits home for me. Uh, it was when I was in the eighth grade. I was in the eighth grade and I was, uh, I actually decided to try out for the junior high men's basketball team. Okay, and so... Uh, I'm 13 years old, uh, had not had a growth spurt yet, so I was very, very short. I wasn't very athletic, uh, and really, actually, like, the only basketball I'd ever played was in my driveway, and so uh, I had this idea, you know, all my friends are playing basketball, all the popular guys play, I should try out for this, and I think I might actually have a chance. Like, I'm pretty good on the Fisher-Price goal, and uh, I got a couple good moves, I can do like the around the back thing, I can do the around the leg thing, and all I really need to do is show up to tryouts, coach is going to see my, my moves, and he's going to be like, that guy should be on our team, he should be on our team right now, and so, you know, a couple of weeks went by, I was practicing, got ready, went to tryouts, and as you can imagine, they went horribly, I mean, they, they, went, they could not have gone worse, I suffered terribly throughout the tryouts, by comparison, I was no good at all, and you can imagine just a few days later, coach comes up to me in the hallways at school and says, uh, Andy, uh, I'm really sorry. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there's not enough room left on the roster, and you, you didn't make the team, which is the place that all of you are supposed to say, ah, oh, yeah, great. That's exactly how I felt, standing there thinking, man, embarrassed, crushed, disappointed. And, and it, it didn't really take much longer for me than to even begin thinking, like, you know what, like, I didn't want to be on that team anyways. Who needs that team? Who needs those guys? Basketball, that's such a lame sport anyways. I don't need to be on that team. But then here's kind of like the funny thing that happened. Uh, a few days later, that coach actually came back to me uh, and said, hey, Andy, I was, I've been thinking, um, you know, while there is no more room left on the roster, I was thinking we could really use a team manager. It's like, oh, a team manager? Like, from my eighth grade perspective, thinking like, what does a manager do? And so I asked him, what does a manager do? And, and he says to me, well, it's, it's really important. I mean, it basically, you know, holds the team together and a lot of responsibilities and makes sure everything's running like a well-oiled machine and like this would be a great job for you. And you know, there's some other tasks like uh, you know, making sure the 
players are hydrated and towels are clean. And like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Like, players hydrated. Are you talking about a water boy? <laughs> At that moment, he says, well, you know, like, maybe I kind of like, yeah, like a water boy. Well, why didn't you say so? Yeah, sign me up. I'm on the team now. I am now officially a part of the Westview Middle School Junior High Men's Basketball Team, parentheses, manager. Okay, I made it. Now, when you think about that, you know, initially, that feeling of rejection, that's one that cuts deep, isn't it? It penetrates our hearts because it's a deeply personal feeling. When we feel that, 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 that feeling of rejection, and we've all experienced that in some way or another, probably for most of us, uh, probably the area in life that almost all of us think of automatically we go to when it comes to that concept of rejection is relationships, right? Most of you can probably even remember uh, the very first time. And I realize, you know, now for most of us in the stage of life that we're at, kind of even the generation that we're growing up in now, uh, you know, when it comes to relationships, we tend to have a little bit of a calloused view on that. Uh, We kind of tend to think, you know, all men are jerks, all women are whatever. And, you know, we've kind of grown up in this uh, environment so much that even the whole concept or idea of relationships is, we're just callous to that. But I would bet that most of you can still remember a time. Most of you can still remember a time in your life when you, when, when you dreamed about a certain guy holding your hand walking down the halls of school. Most of you can, you, you remember dreaming about some girl in your class and, and you, just, you just wished with all of your being that something would happen there, right? And, and, and you just hoped that something would happen until, uh, until one day, until something happened, the very first time you experienced rejection. Maybe it was you know, a guy that you liked in gym class and he didn't like you back. Or maybe it was a girl that you liked in English class and you really worked up the nerve to eventually ask her out and you had the, the perfect strategy and the perfect pickup line and the perfect timing and then you tried it out. You had the nerve to do it one day at the end of English class. You, you asked her out and, uh, and she didn't say no. She just laughed. And, and she laughed some more and she didn't stop laughing. And eventually she left the classroom continuing to laugh. Or maybe it was in college and there was that guy that you really just thought you had like a really special connection with. And there was that guy that you felt like he must have really liked you and you really liked him and, and, and you were really confident. He was really flirtatious. And you actually remember daydreaming about this guy throughout lectures in class, thinking, I just can't wait until this is official and then that comes the day when you realize, maybe I, I, I completely misread this entire relationship. I was naive about the whole thing. He's actually already taken. He doesn't like me. And your world is crushed. Your foundation is removed. You, you just feel that disappointment, that discouragement, the embarrassment, the resentment. And the more and more that happens, and the more and more times that you experience that, the weight of those feelings becomes unbearable to the point that we feel like, you know what? Everything in this world is against me. This world is waging war, and I cannot win. We feel the weight of rejection. We feel the weight of opposition in our lives. And suddenly we just wonder, what do I even do about this? Well, here's the thing. The the text that we're actually studying tonight, this passage is designed to give us hope. Okay, this passage is designed to give us hope because what we're going to see here is that uh, when this, what we're getting is like a picture of a people. And when these people face opposition, when these people see criticism, what's going to happen is this is not going to shut them down like it does us often. It's not going to sideline them, but it's going to strengthen them. 
It's going to strengthen these people. And the same can be true for us. The very same thing can be true for us. And here's the big idea. As we study this passage tonight, here's what we need to kind of take away from this. Um, Although in our lives, most often uh, the time is rejection, that idea of rejection, that's one of those things that we most desperately try to avoid. Oftentimes, it's the one thing we most desperately need. Okay, although rejection is oftentimes the one thing we're most desperately trying to avoid, oftentimes it is the one thing we most desperately need. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to pick it back up in Acts chapter 4. Follow along with me. What we're going to do is we're going to start reading in verse 1. We're going to read through this story uh, by part again. So starting in verse 1, follow along. It says, uh, and as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, if you remember last week, let's do a quick recap uh, real quickly. You remember last week, uh, chapter 3, we started this event. So chapter 4 is just an overflow of what happened last week. Last week, we saw Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest followers. Uh, They came uh, out to go to the temple one afternoon. They were going there to pray uh, when, on their way, they ran across a paralyzed man begging for money. Instead of giving him money, what did he do? He, they healed him. You remember this? Uh, they, they healed him by the, the power of the Holy Spirit, the name of the living and risen Jesus Christ. They healed the man. He gets up. He starts leaping around. He goes dancing through the temple, worshiping Jesus. And, uh, and all these people show up. Thousands of people show up to begin listening to Peter preach. He's preaching this sermon, and that's when we come to chapter 4, verse 1, when all of a sudden you see this suddenly, uh, a small a small but very powerful group of men show up. We've got the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. Now, these are religious leaders, but these are also, these are very political in nature, okay? So these are, think, very influential, very powerful men. They show up in this moment, and, uh, and they're, so, they're so annoyed by what's going on, by, by the preaching that Peter uh, and John are doing. They're so annoyed that they, they just end up seizing Peter, they apprehend John, and they lock them both in prison. Throw them both in jail for what they're doing. And in that moment, you kind of see, like, what, is, what exactly is happening here? Um, because these, these men, they're just they're showing mercy to a, to a lame man. They're showing mercy, the most gracious act of kindness that they can show. And the funny, almost ironic thing is happening here is that they're being opposed, they're being uh, criticized for standing up for the right thing. They're being opposed for doing what is right in that moment. Now, here's the thing. Uh, on one hand, uh, all of us know, you, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be a history major to know that almost any time anyone throughout history is taking a stand for what is right, they're going to be critics right? And we all know this. Anytime, all throughout history, that anybody takes a stand for what is right, there are going to be critics. There are going to be people who are opposed to those movements. So whether it's, uh, you know, Rosa Parks sitting on a bus or MLK marching down the street, anytime anybody takes a stand for what is right, there are going to be critics. There's going to be opposition. There are going to be people who are opposed to that movement. And I think that's the very first thing that we're learning when we look at that, um, look at this passage. The first thing we're seeing uh, Luke tell us tonight is that opposition can be a sign of progress, okay? Opposition is a sign of 
progress. That's what we're seeing happen here as the Christian movement advances. But here's the thing. This doesn't just happen on large-scale, like, nationwide movements, okay? This happens in all of our own lives, every day. We see this all the time. In fact, you've probably even counseled people using that very advice. For example, uh, some of you, some of you have friends uh, who are in you know, pretty unhealthy relationships, and they know that, and you're trying to counsel them and help them get out of those relationships, and they know that, and they're, they're starting to get out of that. And what happens inevitably anytime they're leaving that relationship? Criticism is going to come, right? It's either uh, maybe some boyfriend is saying stuff, or his friends and roommates, or uh, my favorite is the long, multi-paragraph, vague uh, Facebook rants. You know, you see people post, and you're like, I don't know what's going on right now, but that sounds serious, and I don't want to be a part of that at all. You see that all the time on Facebook, but, but, but when that happens, you know, what, what's the first thing that you say to that friend? And I know the situation. I know what's happening here right now. You just need to walk away, and what's happening? This is just a sign that you're doing the right thing. This is just a sign that you are doing the right thing. Maybe you see this in, in, in the workplace with some of your friends. Some of your friends are in really unhealthy workplaces, and, and they're being taken advantage of, and, and they're being forced to do things that they're not really comfortable with, and you go to them and say, hey, you need to get out of here. And, and when they kind of speak up, when they take a stand for what is right, what happens? They're mocked, they're belittled, they're threatened, they're labeled. You tell them, man, if that's how your management's going to respond or if that's how things are going to go down, you got to get out of here because it's obviously just a sign that you're doing the right thing. If that's how they're going to respond, this is a sign that you're doing the right thing. This, this happens in our lives all the time. We see this all the time. We can, we, we can attest saying, yeah, opposition is a sign that we're, we're making progress. Opposition is a sign that we're doing the right thing. So let's just be just the very very first thing that we're seeing in this passage tonight, let this just be an encouragement to us. Let this be an encouragement to us because as we study the Christian movement, we see the Christian movement unfold and multiply and take off, we know that if we're part of this, we're going to be criticized for doing the right thing. All right? I mean, that's very simple advice, but sometimes that's really challenging. We're going to be criticized for doing the right thing. In fact, um, one of the things I've realized over time is that while... uh, for many of us, it's really easy for us to um, maybe advise other friends or tell other people like, hey, this is just a sign you're doing the right thing. Uh, this is just criticism that you need to brush off, shake off. Don't worry about it. We're really, it's really easy for us to share that with other people. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to receive that though? I mean, it's almost impossible because you know, when you're being wronged or when you feel like you're being criticized, when you hear that one voice of disagreement, I mean, it can almost completely derail us, can't it? I know when the, when the opposition is at me, when I hear that voice, I'm like, I don't even care about the thousand other compliments I received this week. I don't even care about all the other good things I know I'm doing at work right now. I don't even care about all the changes that I'm making in my lifestyle. I just realized that one person doesn't like me. I just realized that there's somebody in this earth that doesn't think I'm absolutely perfect. And that like completely destroys me. It makes me want to crumble. But then when we look at this passage, when we look at Jesus, we see this is just the, this is the pattern. The pattern that was laid down from the very beginning of our faith. Jesus himself, perfect example of love and kindness, mercy, laying down his life on our behalf. What happens? Some people love him. Some people hate him. The same here with Peter and John. 
as they're following in the footsteps of Jesus, we see the pattern laid out for us in our faith is that when people are doing the right thing, opposition will inevitably follow. It is a sign. So be encouraged. When you, when you experience this, when you feel this, you can know this is, this is, just, this is exactly what our faith was founded in. Now, I, I feel like I need to make a disclaimer because not all criticism that we feel, not all opposition that we face in life, I mean, it's not all because of our faith. Sometimes, especially as Christians, we have to admit, let's be honest here, sometimes we do uh, not the right thing, right? Sometimes we do stupid things. Sometimes we do immature things. Sometimes we do inappropriate things. Sometimes we just do the wrong thing. So not all criticism in our lives is always because we're following Jesus. But if we are, if we're loving Jesus and following Jesus and architecting our lives around Jesus, we can expect opposition. It's just a natural part of following him. Let's see how the, uh, the story continues, though. And let's pick it back up, uh, verse 3. Follow along with me in verse 3. It says, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But, and this is a spoiler alert here, okay? But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, I like to imagine at this point what Luke is doing is actually just giving away the end of the story. It's like he's so excited to go ahead and just give it away. Even theologians, different scholars this week that I read were so surprised that he includes this detail at this point in the story because normally this would come at the very end, right? But he goes ahead and it's just like he's jumping the gun and saying, I got to tell you, just in case you were wondering, many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of these men came to about 5,000. 5,000 men. This doesn't even include the women and children who may have joined that movement. 5,000 men in the midst of opposition, seeing their leaders in prison, these men say, you know what? I'm on board. I believe. I want to be part of the movement. I want to follow Jesus. And they join. And then verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Just think very important, very influential people. Verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, this is like a courtroom setting, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now in this moment, notice first of all, they're not even asking them about the event of the healing or or the reliability of the healing. Uh, There's no question at all that this man has been miraculously healed. It's un Deniable. Everyone already knows. This man has been lame for 40 years, and now he is healed. He is walking around. He is dancing. He is leaping. There's no question about that. But what they are asking, notice the very question that they ask here. They say, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, I feel like I have a little bit of an imagination, and uh, I feel like at times uh, when I read a story like this, just try to figure out what exactly is like, going on right here. And I, I feel like... When I read this story, I, I tend to think Peter and John are probably like, you know, standing next to each other, like two little kids who know that they've just been caught and they have adults towering over them and just asking them, all right, give us an explanation. And Peter you know, is looking at John and John's looking at Peter and they're not saying anything, but they're thinking like, okay, which one of you, us is going to do this? Are you going to do this? Am I going to do this? Which one of us needs to answer here? And then uh, just think, for example, if this were you, just imagine, if this were you, and you're being interrogated by the most influential, most powerful ruler or authority within your city, 
You're standing there in the room and they're towering over you and they're asking you these questions. Now, how do you respond in that moment? How do you respond in that moment when you're being interrogated? Now, if it's me, if I'm being honest, I think in those moments, I tend to probably want to probably say whatever I think they want to hear, right? I'm going to try to like pitch it in the best way possible. So, you know, if my boss were calling me into an office, if my wife were calling me into the kitchen and saying like, explain yourself, why is it like this? I'm trying to think, okay, what's the best way I can answer right now? How can I bring this down a notch and kind of alleviate things a little bit? And that's what I would imagine Peter wanting to try to do. Because in the past, Peter has this reputation. He's a little flaky. There have been times in Peter's life where he's kind of run away, uh, been a little bit nervous, too cowardly to answer. But let's see actually what he says. I love this because uh, what he's going to do, he's going to totally redeem himself here. Let's look in verse 8. Verse 8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, a.k.a. those of you who hold my life in your hands right now, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that, this is his answer here, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom, oh, by the way, in case you forgot, you crucified, whom, oh, keep in mind this little detail, God raised from the dead. By him, meaning Jesus, this man is standing before you well. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And in case I can just say one more thing, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I imagine Peter just dropping the mic, walking off stage, taking a seat next to John. John's like shaking his head, looking at the ground. I wasn't expecting that to happen. And all of a sudden, everybody's standing there. And Peter's just like stood up and said, this is what it is. You want to know the power by which we are doing this? You want to know the name by which we're doing this? It's the power of the Holy Spirit, the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised, and by whom the only way to salvation is found. And that's what he tells them. That's what he tells them in that moment of opposition. You know why this is really remarkable? When you look at verse 8, Just the very way that it starts off, this what seems like a small detail that Luke provides for us. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has filled him, giving him the courage, giving him the strength, giving him the boldness to be able to speak and tell about Jesus in that moment. You know, I think in that moment, um, what we're seeing, the second thing, when we experience opposition, opposition really forces us to depend on the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the second point for tonight. Opposition really forces all of us to depend on the Holy Spirit. You know where I, I've, I've probably encountered this, this the most, you've probably seen this the most in your own life. Uh, anytime you're sharing your faith with somebody, you know, this, is, this probably works if you're a Christian, even if you're not a Christian. Anytime you're talking about those things, you can see that those are some of the most um, nerve-wracking conversations at times. And if you're a Christian and you find yourself sharing your faith with someone who doesn't really see eye to eye with you, you can realize that is a time where you feel the need for the Holy Spirit more than any other time. Now, let me tell you, uh, for me, when I feel like I have these conversations with people uh, trying to get them to uh, hear the good news about Jesus and believe the gospel and persuade them to believe those things, uh, I feel like those conversations tend to go one of two ways. 
They tend to go one of two ways. First, uh, on one hand, they either tend to go uh, so well in my mind that they seem so uh, persuasive, so compelling, uh, so passionate, trying to convince people that this is great news for your life and that you should believe, and here are all the reasons why, and here are all the reasons why, uh, you know, I'm going to debunk your other reasons, and this is a great presentation of the gospel of Jesus, and that's the first way that tends to go. You know what usually happens in those moments that surprises me every time? People don't believe. Like, that's really nice, Andy, but I, I don't believe that. And the second way those conversations often go, and you may relate to this, a lot of times those conversations are awkward. Uh, I feel like I, I, I kind of stumble over words. I, I don't know exactly what to say at certain times. I feel like I'm trying to uh, be winsome and trying to be persuasive. And I leave that conversation thinking, you know what? I may have just convinced him the very opposite of what I believe. I may have, may have just convinced him the very opposite thing of what I'm trying to win him over to. In fact, I think I just sealed the deal on that. And and those kind of opportunities, those kind of moments, those force you to rely on the Holy Spirit. Those moments also force you to pray. Say, Jesus, I'm really sorry. That was embarrassing for me and for you probably. And I'm really sorry. If anybody's going to change that person's heart, it's probably not going to be me, but it's probably going to be you. So help me here. You ever felt like that before as you're sharing your faith, as you're in those moments of opposition and you're trying to speak eloquently? God says, in those moments of opposition, you are going to have to rely on the Holy Spirit. You are going to have to rely on the Spirit. And the greatest thing about that, from cover to cover, this book is filled with promises that tell us that he will always be with us. From cover to cover, this is filled with promises that he will always be with us. Be with us. Psalm 46, for example, we're going to put it up on the screens. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. And you, you know what that feels like, right? When the very ground, the foundation on which you stand, feels like it has been removed from below you. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, he utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Spirit promises to be with us in our times of trouble. When opposition comes, we know that God is there to help us. In fact, uh, Jesus, in the, book of, uh, in the book of Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, he even is telling uh, his disciples, he's warning them about this very day that's happening in this story in Acts 4. He warns Peter and John in advance uh, in Luke. And, and you can actually see it here. It says, and when they bring you, he's talking to his disciples, Peter and John here. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That's months, maybe even years before this day comes. Jesus is preparing his disciples. And then we see in verse 8, it comes to reality. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, declaring the gospel to these leaders. Opposition is a sign progress. Opposition forces us to depend on the Holy Spirit. Finally, uh, we're going to see tonight that opposition advances the mission. Opposition is going to uh, not hinder, but advance the mission. Uh, If we continue this, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, 
they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Isn't that amazing? It's actually one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Some of you can relate to that. Some of you know what that feels like. For people in your life right now to notice, like things are, things are completely different about you. And the only explanation that you have is that you have been with Jesus. You've been with Jesus. But seeing the man, verse 14, but seeing the man who is healed, standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded him to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For what a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them and let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I think what's most remarkable about this story is really the way it ends. After these religious leaders have come together and kind of deliberated with one another and tried to come to an agreement, and what what do they do? They realize that there's nothing that they can do to these men. There's nothing that they can do to stop this movement from going forward. And think about it. On one hand, they've got this man who's been miraculously and undeniably healed. On the other end, they've got 5,000 men that just gave their lives to Jesus and decided to start following him, and they're rejoicing because of their new life in him. So you've got a a man that's been miraculously healed. You've got 5,000 men that have given their lives to Jesus. And then in the middle, you've got Peter and John. And what do you do with them? What do you do with men like that? What do you say to them? I mean, you can, you can threaten them, and they did. You can warn them, and they did. You can tell them not to speak. You can, you can even kill them, which eventually they will end up doing. But what is going to stop a movement of God? What is going to stop a movement of God like this? A movement that started with a man named Jesus claiming to be God, having the forgiveness of, and having the ability to forgive our sins. What's going to stop a movement? Even when, even when that founder of the faith is crucified and buried, when he gets back up from the ground, what is going to stop a movement like that? What is going to stop a movement that, that continues to grow and grow and grow and spread by the dozens and then the hundreds and the thousands as it moves from neighborhood to neighborhood, from city to city, from nation to nation, from country to country, from, from, from continent to continent? What is going to stop a movement like that? I mean, think about it. You, know, you, you, can, you can try to oppose it, but what happens when you oppose it? People rely more on the Holy Spirit. What happens when people rely more on the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit shows up more. What happens when the Holy Spirit shows up more? Well, people are more dependent on the Holy Spirit and more lives are changed because of the Spirit. What happens when more lives are changed by the Spirit? More people start believing and they're saved. What happens when more people start believing and are saved? More people join the movement and it keeps going and going and going. The movement becomes unstoppable. It is a movement from God 
doesn't matter if we threaten. It doesn't matter if we command them not to speak. It doesn't matter if we put them in jail or kill them. Because this is not a movement of men. This is a movement of God. And it's going to continue to go forward and forward and forward. Now, as we close tonight, let me just say, like, some of you, I realize, some of you are not Christians here. We're really glad that you've joined us tonight. We're really glad that you're here with us. And, and I realize you're not a part of this movement, uh, and you may not believe what we believe, and you may still have questions about your faith. You may have, uh, be exploring spirituality, and that's great. But let me tell you, there is nothing better, nothing better than giving away your life to the movement of God. It changes every single thing about your life changes your marriage, changes your relationships, changes your work, your dreams. It changes everything. And there's nothing better than giving away your life to the movement of God. And if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, what we have to understand is that when we are giving our lives to his movement, we're going to realize that opposition is just a natural part of following him. Jesus faced it. His disciples faced it. The church faced it. We are going to face it but we've been given a promise. We've been given a promise that even though there's opposition, we can depend on God to protect us. We can depend on his spirit to be with us. And we know, we know that opposition is only going to advance the movement because we have a God who is an ever-present help in times of trouble, our refuge and strength at all times. Let us pray tonight as we close and, uh, and ask God just to help us continue believing this more and more. Pray with me now. Father God, Lord, we give you thanks uh, as we just look at your word and see how opposition is just a natural part of following you. Lord, how opposition is one of those things in life that uh, you give to us as a gift so that we can further rely on you. It's a gift so that we can further depend on your spirit to change us to push us closer to Jesus, to make us more like you. Father, we pray that as, uh, as your people, as your church, we realize that uh, when we face opposition, but not, not if we face opposition, but when we do, Lord, I pray that we would depend on your spirit to continue empowering us to, to do your work. And Lord, I pray that we would know that you have us here for a very reason. You have us in this church. You have us in this city. Because Denver matters, because Colorado matters, because Jesus matters, and because we matter. Lord, I pray that you continue to use us as your people, facing opposition, turning the world upside down as we follow you. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.